Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The lineup of troublemakers in this week's episode is extensive. Victorian London, it would seem, was awash with ne'er-do-wells and undesirables. Uh, librarians, for example, shopkeepers improving themselves, foreign pauper aliens, ladies up ladders. <laughs> the list goes on. Thank goodness the present day is altogether more respectable. The day being the 3rd of October 2014, and this being Londonist Out Loud. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sounds. You ain't never seen the light before, just a stone throw from your front door. people listening to this show know London pretty well. So I've got a challenge here. I'm looking at a London structure and I'll describe it for you. Maybe you could tell me where I am today. Um, First of all, we've a large arch through which we can pass in the centre. On the top of it, we've got the the crest of the City of London Corporation flanked by two dragons. Either side on this structure are smaller arches. I guess uh, someone might walk through those, whereas the the wagons would pass through the central one. To the right-hand side, there's a wooden roofing structure underneath which perhaps one might shelter in the rain on a plaque to the left-hand side. I think this might be artistic license on the woodcut I'm looking at. There's a man of the cloth, his head, his mitre. Where are we? I suppose the big clue is that this structure hasn't existed for several hundred years. It was pulled down in 1760. I'm with Michelle Johansson, who is the interpretations officer here at the uh, the Institute. Hello. Hello. Uh, what can we say about Bishop's Gate? Uh, Bishop's Gate was demolished in 1760. It was one of the gates um, in the London Wall to the City of London that prevented and helped people gain access to the city. Demolished in 1760, it stood roughly where Camomile Street is today, across Bishop's Gate, so a little bit further south than we are here today, just a short walk there. It's one of those ideas, I suppose, about London that I wish I could have, uh, I could time travel back to the gates of London. And the idea that they were all pulled down at the, the same moment has always intrigued me. It must have been a, just a massive change to the way the city worked, and I guess the flow of everything. It must have seemed like, uh, I don't know, a high-speed internet arriving or something. 
Yes, no, you're absolutely right because the um, the London Walls have really uh, created a barrier between East London and the City of London, and in many ways are responsible for the East End being as it is today. Because it seemed to be that people, because of the legislation within the City of London, people couldn't practice their trades in the city, so they had to come to the eastern side of the city walls, if that makes sense. So people arrive here in London from all over the world through the docks, come up through towards the city to try to sell their goods and sell their wares, but they couldn't get any further than the London Wall. Sorry, I'm going off a bit of a tangent, but just thinking of the city walls and what they've meant to this part of London, where we are, you know, on the border of the city in the East End. And the walls were a kind of direct or built representation of that barrier. I don't think I'd ever understood it in that way. So you've got the tides of... I'm not sure whether you'd say commerce, but certainly all sorts of lesser industries, I suppose, manufacturing. And we often think of textiles around here, all absolutely essential, of course, but but not able to penetrate past the city. Well, so was there a change then, do you know, when the, when the gates came down? Well, they came down in 1760. All of the gates came down. But I think that there weren't changes immediately. There was still that kind of um, psychological barrier for people between the wealth of the city and the relative poverty of the East End alongside it. So we're here at the Bishopsgate Institute. It's October. Next month is a very important date in the Bishopsgate Institute calendar. And why so? Because the Bishopsgate Institute was established in the 1890s and there are a few key moments around its opening. And one of them was November 1894 when the Institute had a grand opening ceremony here in the building. And we're using that moment of the 120th anniversary to have a kind of celebrations. So that's the plan in November. We're going to recreate the ball that took place on the day. So we're going to have a a grand ball in our Great Hall and that's going to be a great occasion, I think. So that's 120 years. Uh, My... my (laughs) My advanced mathematical skills tell me that's 120 years. And what are we going to think about today? And I I should preface this by saying that uh, on a previous episode, we've spoken with the highly characterful Stefan Dickers, who gave us uh, uh, a walkthrough, really, of the history of the Institute and uh, some of the philanthropic leanings and gestures that saw it be established and saw its success. And we also talked about one of the characters, himself a huge character, who I think was around for about 50 years and really made sure that the Institute was on its two feet and able to survive some difficult times. We're going to take a slightly different angle today, several slightly different angles potentially. Um, How are we coming at the Bishopsgate Institute? Well, I thought it might be interesting to locate the Institute within the wider story of public library movement because the Institute was set up in the 1890s and as anyone that lives in London knows from walking around and looking at the, the high streets, there were a number of public libraries being set up at that time across London. They, they were funded from the rates, which is a bit different from the Institute because the Institute was funded from a charitable foundation. So it was it was independent in the 1890s and is still independent today. But at the same time as the Institute opening, there was a general movement towards Um, education, self-education and self-improvement and the Institute was part of that but also what was happening is that rate-assisted libraries were being opened across London and there was a real explosion in the 1890s of public library openings and there were three opened in one day in East London in the 1890s so you can imagine the person who was responsible for the opening kind of running from one to the other and um, attempting to get to each ceremony on time because when we think about public libraries today we tend to think about a story of closure and decline and deterioration but the 1890s was a moment of explosion and life and dynamism in the history of public libraries and I imagine and I'd like to think that the Institute sits within that wider story. 
You mentioned the celebratory nature of the opening of this place, which we're commemorating. I wondered whether that was a bit of razzmatazz around something that no doubt useful, essential to the community and the development of uh, this part of town in particular. But was that celebration authentic and publicly felt or was it put on by the people to draw a bit of attention? Uh, Maybe that's a, a cynical 21st century way of thinking about it. No, that's a really interesting point because there's there's two things I want to say in response to that. One is that what surprised me about looking at the the opening ceremony that took place here in November 1894 was that there was actually a press pack produced and this was commonplace at the time and I had no idea. I thought that things like press packs and media interest and branding were all new things but at the time that took place and these um, press packs were circulated to all of the media who were invited to come to the opening event. The media were uh, seated at the front of the Great Hall so they got good seats and all of them then reproduced this uh, kind of information that they've been given by the the then clerk of the institute Frederick Fitch who'd circulated these paragraphs of information about the institute and they're all just regurgitated word for word almost in all of the local papers so on the one hand you do have this thing which is a kind of media circus almost but on the other hand what you do have is that when the institute did throw its doors open to the public on New Year's Day 1895 thousands of people turned up, thousands and thousands came to borrow the books and to use the library and so that's where we start to see a story of real need because within the first month some 15,000 people have borrowed, have registered as borrowers which is quite amazing for us to think of now and so every time the, the librarian at the time who was called Ronald Heaton, um, he was constantly going to the governor saying I need more tickets for the borrowers, I need more books for the shelves because he was running out and running out and running out. And this story, too, was reflected across London. The Hither Green Library in south-east London opened without any books on the shelves because all the money had gone into building the library itself <laughs> and there were no, no money left for books for the borrowers, so the borrowers had to wait until the next financial year when the governors of the, of the library could afford to buy some books to go on the shelves. But initially they just had a reading room with no books to borrow. They could go in and look at the newspapers. And, in fact, we shouldn't underestimate that because that was a really big draw for the local public libraries is that people often couldn't afford to buy their own newspapers so in the first public libraries the newspapers would have um, queues and and waiting lists arranged for the newspapers because they would be on stands because they were very big they'd be on these huge stands and you'd have people clustered around all trying to look at the newspaper and then they'd be moved on after a few minutes so the next group of people could come to look at newspapers and that was the same here at Bishopsgate as it was in the public libraries across London and that was because at that time of course the 1890s the only way to get any news was through the newspapers no television no radio so the newspapers in all of the local libraries and Bishopsgate Institute as well were a big draw I think this is going to be an episode of contrasting that period with uh, the situation now. We're really uh, information gluttons now, aren't we? It's, it's just coming out of our ears, and the idea that it couldn't, that there was no other way to disseminate it, is really shocking. You're absolutely right. And do you know what's really funny as well is that um, in the early part of the 20th century, the librarian here, uh, the Boer War was happening. He would get every day, see what was happening in the newspapers. He would then have maps in the Institute corridor. Outside here, we've got an extremely long corridor in the building, which was a public space and very much used by the public walking past to and fro, coming from the main entrance at the front of the building into the library. And that space there, he would use to display maps of the world and on those maps he would have flags coloured flags different ones to represent different armies and he would move them around to let the public know what was going on in wars in different parts of the world in the early part of the 20th century because these people at the time were obviously very curious about the wider world but they had no way of finding out what was going on and so the librarian here would use this means of showing people what was happening elsewhere 
I think this raises a question. Now, I know you're you're an expert on libraries, so maybe you'll know the answer to this. I'm not sure whether it's peripheral or not, but the I'm aware, of course, that newspapers started to appear in, the, I think, the 1700s, and you'd think about them in association with coffee houses and not the most rigorous standards of journalism sometimes, uh, lots of controversy and arguing and politics. But that means that there's a, a 200-year or so period there, or a 150, 200-year period, where that would be something that only people with money really would have access to and presumably at best you'd get a bit of a drip down to people who can't afford or are illiterate which is the other big issue there so there's going to be a vastly under-informed population isn't there? There is, unless you start to think quite imaginatively about how people might have used that information at the time, because what you would have, you would have um, working men's institutes, for example, in the 19th century, or even in pubs and taverns, you would get one person who could read, would read the newspapers out loud to everybody else. And that was also filtering through into the home as well. So you'd have the, the, you know, the man of the house would read the papers to the children or to his wife who might be illiterate as well. And so even though not everybody would be able to have access to a newspaper or be able to read the newspaper, there'd be a sense of community and sharing of knowledge that took place that maybe is hard for us to appreciate and understand now. So that was how the news would be filtered through to a wider audience. I think the other thing that's interesting about using newspapers as information sources at the time and sharing them with a wider public who couldn't necessarily afford the few pence to buy a daily newspaper is what the library staff used to do here very early on. They used to take out the advertisement pages, the job advertisement pages, from the newspaper and post them outside the um, side entrance so that anyone who was looking for a job could just come there first thing in the morning and stand and look at these and what I think was a particularly kind of cute touch and something that we might not think of now is that um, they made sure that this area was covered so that if it was a rainy day the people who were out of work and looking for jobs wouldn't get wet and wouldn't get cold and uncomfortable so they could actually have this covered canopy area to look at the job advertisements so and this wasn't particular to Bishopsgate Institute a lot of public libraries would do the same thing so they acted almost as um, labour exchanges in a period before you had uh, you know state welfare system anything like that in place so they had a very a very kindly and caring role to play in the community which i think is quite surprising maybe i've often thought when thinking about the institute because it's not the, the bishopsgate library it's the bishopsgate institute and there's a sort of a, an openness about the way that the term works and the way the place seems to work lots of different things going on besides the library the archive as well of course but there's a lot of that initial impulse that original impulse towards self-improvement and in fact just waiting to come in for this interview there was an open university examination going on several at the same time going back to those early days it sounds as though that impulse was widespread and there were books coming out or lots of books coming out about self-improvement the focus of various philanthropists was towards assisting people in I guess we'd call it something like self-actualization or something like that but it was, it was much more concrete than that but I'm wondering where the impulse really came from was that a groundswell of, of people working class people who were desperate to move up and progress or was this something that was coming down from benevolent and well-off folk I think that's a really interesting point. I think at first it came from benevolent and well-off folk, but I think what started to happen is that as more and more people from working-class backgrounds and working-class communities started to self-improve, then it almost became contagious because people could see the direct effect and impact it had, beneficial impact it had, on the lives of these people. So you would get somebody, for example, a carpenter somewhere in the northwest of Britain, for example, who would do his day's work, 12, 13, 14-hour day work, very, very hard labour as well, and then after that would walk miles to the local library to improve himself and educate himself after hours. And so that was seen as a kind of... A, it became a real trope. 
And people started to aspire to that in the same way as today people might aspire to be like um, the Kardashians or might aspire to be like Katie Price. But in the 19th century, people were aspiring to be like this, maybe someone that was the head of their um, local union or someone that was very active in the local Working Men's Institute, and they would see this person as almost heroic, so that self-education and the acquisition of knowledge became something that was really highly regarded from the bottom up. It was no longer from the top down. And if you take the story of the public libraries in particular, what's especially interesting about nearly all London public librarians in the late 19th century, which was the moment when these rate-assisted libraries all started, they all came from working-class backgrounds. So they all had their own narrative, their own personal narrative of a rags-to-riches story almost. They were the sons of builders, labourers, miners, carpenters, plasterers, all those kind of things. And they had self-educated and self-improved to the level where they were seen almost as experts in their field which was almost always local history over time but what they wanted to do is they wanted to make sure that everybody else had the same opportunity that they had and because they were these living breathing exemplars of really positive self-improvement you know because it had an impact across their entire lives materially as well so they they'd done better for themselves by educating themselves and so that's why I think as a, as a kind of example it spread and, and more and more people started to see the benefits of working to improve themselves coming from a a literary standpoint the big lampoonable figure in all of this for me is Jude the Obscure who of course was an autodidact as well and I think he's depicted uh, having some trouble in his aspirations certainly but there's almost something a bit sneery about the idea of somebody who who does teach themselves and I I don't know I sometimes feel that there's a bit of a whiff about that when uh, somebody talks about their degree coming from the open university or um, that they're uh, on some sort of evening course it's not it seems sometimes that it's not really taken seriously whereas you could easily make the argument that somebody who's who's, you know working up all day and then putting themselves through whatever educational course is actually working a great deal harder in in order to achieve that for themselves I I wonder why there's that whiff of something um, not quite right about uh, self-education I think if you um, looked at it very simply, you could say that it's a desire to make sure that you're keeping people in their place because by sneering at people and laughing at them and dismissing them, you're trying to um, very subliminally putting them off improving themselves because you're making them feel that their knowledge isn't as worthy as your own might be. Or I, I think that's quite an important mm. point. I don't think that that point of view is going to... Not least because of the work you do, but also I can't help noticing that there's a slightly subversive element around the Bishopsgate Institute. And I, I'm sure you're not going to deny that that is the... Just behind me, I'm conscious there's a picture of Marx. Uh, on the wall, there's a, a CND thing. There's lots of uh, ideas and symbols around taking power in all sorts of different ways and asserting the power of the working-class person and, and things that government probably doesn't approve of uh, terribly much like that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it started with the things that we were collecting in the early part of the 20th century which were um, some specific collections that came in. There was George Howell, the Lib Lab MP for Bethnal Green North East we have his collection here. We also had uh, freethinker Charles Bradlaw George Jacob Holyoke of the co-op movement. So those three people began this slightly left of centre collecting policy that the Institute has elaborated upon and expanded all through the course of the 20th century and even more so into the 21st century. So recently we've taken in the collections of the Stop the War Coalition. We've also got Shelter Collection. We have got um, Bernie Grant, one of the first non-white MPs to be elected after the Second World War in the 1980s. We've got his collection here. So we have got a real range of kind of left of centre collections here at the institute which has probably helped to embed that sense of independence and left-leaning do you know what i don't know if this is something we're going to be able to do 
Um, but I would love to be able to say something about Bernie Grant, not least because one of the... Now, I've got, I'm just going to put in a complaint here, uh, not about the Bishopsgate Institute, but uh, re- relentless. We've been trying to get people behind black history to get involved with the podcast. And we every year, we and nothing comes back. I'm starting to take it personally. But, uh, for example, in the, in the history of London, Bernie Grant is phenomenally important. And we haven't had an opportunity to bring him up yet. Could we say a little bit about... Him. Yes, of course we could. Bernie Grant was born in Guyana and he came to, um, well he came to England but in fact Scotland. He went to Edinburgh and studied there and he then went through grassroots politics so he was involved in the union movement into local politics in northwest London. Well I call it northwest because I'm from southeast but it's probably other people might call it north London so Haringey. And then he became Tottenham MP and then finally got elected in 1987 with a lot of support from the Labour Party Black Sections movement. So Bernie Grant was elected alongside Diane. Anne Abbott, Keith Faz and Paul Botang. So there were four suddenly after there'd been not one single non-white MP elected in the post-war period, suddenly four were elected at once in the 1987 election. So it was a really key moment in minority representation. And Bernie Grant was just an amazing figure. We have the collection here, as I say. It includes the um, traditional African robes he wore when he first went to Parliament to take his seat. So he's this very flamboyant character, but also, I mean, he mentioned subversive, but also subversive. I mean, to, to make a bold statement like that about your roots and heritage and how important it was to you that you would turn up to a huge mm. ceremony in that way dressed... Well, assertive. Yeah, yeah, very, very assertive. So, so I mean, we've got the robes here. What we also have, though, that I find really amazing is that um, when he died in 2000, condolence books were placed around the whole borough of Haringey and um, these were signed by different people and when you read these books today they're just so incredibly moving because a lot of people would think that Bernie Grant was involved in um, particularly minority ethnic politics and that he was particularly campaigning for one type of person but that wasn't the case at all Bernie Grant was interested in every single underdog so these um, condolence books are signed by people across the community and lots of them have a personal touch. Bernie Grant helped me when my mother was ill in hospital. He helped campaign for my child's schooling. All of these different things that he did, he really cared about the community. So even though he was also involved in international politics, he was um, uh, very plugged into international movements for minority rights and minority representation. Um, he still cared very much about the local community as well and somehow he seemed to knit these two together to become a really powerful force for, I think, good in the community. And I know he was, uh, uh, maybe close is the wrong word, but he, he was uh, were close enough to Nelson Mandela to be there on the day Mandela was released from um, prison. Uh, well, that, that whole idea made me wonder whether there's a, a... Is there a grouping together? Has there been historically a grouping together of, I want to say, underdogs, really, and by that I probably mean the less well-off recent immigrants, people like that. The I know the Institute talks a lot and displays the histories of migrants, uh, particularly, for example, the big Bangladeshi community that's just around the corner from here, and, um, of course, the black minorities and various other groups. I'm suspecting the Jewish population might also figure. Has there been historically a sort of a grouping together of those with similar, potentially similar, interests or do they tend to factionalize and look after their own or their language barriers do they come together under the 
uh, under the roof of the Bishopsgate Institute. Yes, that's really, really fascinating that you should ask that because what's interesting, I think, about the Bernie Grant collection and looking at the materials there, he, he kept almost everything. So there's lots of campaigning ephemera in there from the 1980s. And what I find really uplifting about that is that that brings everybody together in a way that today it doesn't seem to be. So that you would have people campaigning for the rights of gay people, campaigning for... Um, I'm trying to think of other movements at the time. Well, CND often pops up on a lot of people's CVs. Yeah, it was just, it seemed like everybody who was struggling would come together. So I suppose, yeah, I'm thinking it would be Asian people, black people, Jewish people, and and people um, who were struggling to express their sexuality as well would all come together. Or women, obviously, kind of completely overlooked them. But it'd be women too. And I just feel today that, that groups like that are more factionalised, certainly than they were in the 1980s when it seemed like there was this idealistic moment that everybody could come together to effect change. And it did almost happen, but somehow it seems to have fragmented again now. Why do you suppose that is? Well, that's an interesting question. Not an easy ball either. No, thanks. I know, I know. I'm really thinking maybe when everybody came together in the 1980s, it was because the situation was so dire for everybody. Everyone was really struggling and suffering. And so it was recognised that the only way to have any kind of power at all was to unite. And it seems today that because some gains have occurred, or had occurred, I feel like we're slipping back a little bit, certainly thinking of women's rights. I think. Well, and, and if the reports are to believe uh, race and uh, anti-Semitic stuff as well going on, I believe. Yeah, I think that's true. And so I think that when people were struggling for quite basic rights, then then there was a sense of unity. But I think that once those basic rights were achieved, and people might talk about things like pol- political correctness, as though that's a bad thing. And, and yet it isn't, you know, we should treat everybody equally and there, there should be certain words and terms that aren't used. But I, I wonder whether there isn't a, another side of that self-improvement coin. It doesn't seem a long way away on, the, on that spectrum, which is looking after oneself, and maybe it plays into exactly what we're talking about, but the idea of me, 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 and uh, well, you mentioned the Kardashians and that whole uh, idea of the individual as celebrity or proto-celebrity, and I wonder whether those ideas of community in the broadest possible sense and belonging and looking across barriers has dissolved and it becomes a much more defensive way of thinking about things i think you're right we're becoming a couple of old grouches here aren't we we yeah we might be yeah but but i still will go back further and i think this is acceptable because we can talk about the victorian period but i think when you read any literature from the victorian period about self-help and self-improvement there's a lot of talk about people being cogs in wheels and a lot of a sense of people are one small part of a bigger whole and i think that that's what has maybe been lost i'm thinking particularly you know we've we've got things going on in, in british politics at the moment which to me smell of all the wrong things encouraging people to blame to blame poor people essentially there's a lot of that going on and there's a lot of uh, blaming foreign people for stuff and i don't really buy any of that personally i'd like to see a whole load less of that and it seems to me like the bishopsgate institute actually represents completely the point of view that i'd like to be asserting so we're coming to the end of our first half and perhaps we could get on to archives and things that have been archived and ideas and maybe we could look across the currently rather depressing i suspect scene that is libraries in london London Est Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to a CD, and they're yours to keep. 
For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist and click through. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolfe and I'm at the Bishopsgate Institute. With me is Michelle Johansson, the interpretation officer here and libraries expert here. Do you know what I love about this podcast is the ability that we have here because of the extended length of time not to have to cram everything into a to the point 30 second soundbite, but we can take some time to explore issues that other interviews cannot and uh, so we've willfully wandered off course today and may continue to do so in the second half but we want to talk about libraries but we're not going to for a moment because we have discovered the most delicious thing we were talking before the break of course about the well essentially the rise of uh, in my opinion a a rather unpleasant seam in right-wing politics in this country that's certainly my view Uh, it's not necessarily the view of Londonist I suspect it is the view however of my guest who has discovered an item from the 1890s which really yeah, puts the thing into the the long view yes um i was i always really love going to the archives because because i get to go hands-on with the materials and i'm quite fortunate because i can go into the archive basement and start rummaging through boxes and when you look on the library catalogue you can't necessarily get a sense of what we have in the collections and one day i was just rifling through some of the ephemera in one of the collections and i found a um an election flyer from the 1890s and the election flyer was for a gentleman named um, mancha g banagri who actually was the second ever Asian MP in Britain and the first ever Conservative Asian MP in Britain. And what's curious is that he was standing for election on an anti-immigration ticket and he was successful in this election. And um, it was an East East London uh, constituency. It was Bethnal Green North East. So that was an area that was right on the borders of the East End of London where there are a lot of Russian Jewish immigrants arriving in the 1880s and 1890s. So there was a sense at the time that the, the area of London was losing using its own character and it was being taken over by foreigners so Banagri stood for election on this um, foreign pauper alien ticket and I've got next to me here the flyer that says things like what is one of the principal causes of increased house rent in East London question mark foreign pauper aliens exclamation mark what is one of the causes of overcrowding and insanitary dwellings question mark foreign pauper aliens exclamation mark and so on there are about six or seven of these statements and then at the bottom in bold letters it says vote for Banagri and people did vote for him and I think there's just something very unpleasant about the fact that in the 1890s this um, person was standing for election on these issues which is something that today we're saying is still taking place but what I think is also interesting about it is that I've studied minority representation in Britain to a certain degree because of the Grant collection Bernie Grant collection being here and it's something that really fascinates me and I've never quite understood why there hasn't been more made of it I mean I as a historian had no idea that we had two Asian MPs in the 1890s and an Asian MP in the 1920s I'd never heard of these people and I just assumed that the history of parliamentary representation in Britain was one of of white middle-aged men and so to find that this this had actually happened you know in this fairly relatively early period surprised me and and then when I found this piece of ephemera in the archives I thought well maybe that's part of the explanation is that this doesn't fit comfortably into a story of minority representation because here is someone from a minority who is speaking out against other minorities and it's as though it suddenly becomes a class issue rather than a race issue so this gentleman is from a fairly well-to-do family in India he's very well educated himself and what he doesn't like is these impoverished people who are crowding into the country and I think there's still a very very similar thing today where people think that they're talking about racial lines but actually it's often about class or poverty instead 
That's uh, fascinating. You're not the first person recently I've heard saying persuasively things very similar to that. And of course, when we think of apparently somebody like Banagri, or when we think of I'd have, even people say it about Margaret Thatcher, don't they? That she she may have been a woman in power, but actually she was really a a man in the way she behaved and here, here we have uh, Banagri behaving like something that, that he really isn't and uh, taking on a role that doesn't appear readily to in fact be his although I don't know then we start putting people in boxes, don't we? And that's no good. Libraries in London. So we've got all these libraries appearing in the 1890s. Are there any libraries before the 1890s? That's a great question. In um, 1850, the Public Libraries Act was passed. This act allowed um, local vestries, as they were called at the time, to release money from the rates to build libraries in their regions. And London sprang into action. Some 30 years later, there were two libraries in London. So London didn't respond very quickly to the Library Act, and by 1885 there were just two, one in Westminster, the other in Wandsworth, and that was it. But then it was partly because of Queen Victoria's Jubilee, suddenly a lot of great excitement around the idea that these huge civic buildings could be constructed on the streets of London. And um, all across London, the local vestries started to approve the building of free libraries. And so the 1880s and early 1890s were a real explosion of public libraries in London. And by around 1911, I think there was something like 200 libraries in London and so those libraries that we do see around us today were nearly all built in that period and when we say that what sort of numbers are we talking about we're talking hundreds we're talking hundreds and so they were opening very regularly I mean as I said earlier in the conversation there were three in East London in one day because what would happen is that a, a local vestry would pass or agree the library acts approve them start to fundraise because often the libraries were they were run with rates money from the rates but they were built with um, a philanthropist would donate money so someone like um, Passmore Edwards or Carnegie would donate money to build the library you had the Tate Library in South London that some people might be familiar with in Lambeth and um yeah, so these philanthropists would donate money, and that's why you had these gorgeous, huge buildings with, like I say, often no books inside at all. So um, the buildings were fantastic, the buildings were very well funded, but day-to-day running of the libraries wasn't so well funded. But they were used by people in their absolute thousands. More than a million people used the Campbell Vestry libraries in the first year of opening. We know that there are certain things, institutions, that have existed at various points in time, and, and that really they've been about tourism, cultural tourism or other sorts of tourism. Uh, I, I suppose Bedlam's an example where it's intended for one purpose but it, it sort of inadvertently becomes a tourist attraction and uh, I suppose you could think of Tyburn being another one. Were libraries really being inhabited by people who wanted to improve themselves or were they a fashion? What's interesting about the libraries is that the uh, fashionable people looked down on them. There was a lot of, uh, in the first, well, the very early years, there were arguments from people in the newspapers sometimes saying that these are very grand ladies who send their servants along to park outside the library in the family's carriage and then the servant nips in, get the ladies some novels, goes back out and takes them back to the, the woman of the house again. So there was this suggestion that they were being used by the well-to-do. But in fact, um, librarians kept very careful records of who was using their buildings and it did tend to be the lower middle class over and above anybody else it was people like clerks shopkeepers pupil teachers student teachers those kind of people who are on the very very margins of respectable society does that mean we've still got a record of library use 
Yes, we have. And it's quite amazing because it's, it provides a really, really good insight into the kind of jobs that were around at the time because everyone's listed by occupation. And um, yeah, so it's just fascinating. They provide a fascinating record across the board. And what was interesting, because we talked about people working in isolation and people working more in the community. And the first public librarians, because all these libraries were new, because no one knew how to run a fully open public service at that time with thousands of total strangers coming into a building at random times and no control over it. Um, all the librarians were kind of grouped together to work together to decide how best to run their libraries. So they would produce these annual reports that they sent to their governors to you know, advise them about what had been going on. But they would also circulate all of these to each other as well. So across the country, these um, you know, reports were being posted and sent and delivered. So hundreds still survive today. So they're, they're really interesting for looking at what was going on in the libraries in the 1890s. This is presumably the, the Wild West in library terms. Then they're making it up as they go along and learning from each other. So this must have been a really steep learning curve in how to operate the things as well. Your eyes have just lit up. My eyes have lit up. I can't believe what a great way of expressing it. I've got beside me here the library indicator or one part of a library indicator. The librarians in the, um, well, in the late 19th century, because I'm talking about the 1890s because that's in relation to London, but library development happened a lot quicker elsewhere in Britain or most other places in Britain, certainly in the north, Birmingham, Liverpool, Newcastle. They were very far ahead of the game, Manchester as well. So um, from the middle part of the 19th century, librarians had been inventing appliances to help them deliver their service in the most efficient way possible. So we have this really cutting-edge piece of library apparatus here. It looks, it looks uh, cutting-edge for about the Bronze Age. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a wooden block. It's about the size of a box of kitchen matches. On the uh, outside, it says Cotgreave. I'm sure we're going to find out what that is. And it has uh, little shelves inside it, which seem to be made out of cardboard, which can be inserted and pulled out. Yes, you're right. It is, and it's each little drawer has got a number on it, and each number corresponds to one individual book in a library collection. And as you'll see, one side of the drawer is coloured blue, the other side is coloured red. And the name of this is the indicator because it indicated whether a book was in or out of the library at any given time. So there'd be a vast notice board on a library desk. Good grief. Hold on a second. What you've got in your hand just there is capable of representing about six or seven books. So you'd have to have one one of those little shelves for every book in the library? Yes, you would have hundreds of these all stacked. There would be a big iron surround on the library counter with hundreds and hundreds of these little devices here stacked in there and each each shelf little tiny shelf there or drawer would correspond to one book in the library shelves and all of the books were kept behind the counter so it was a bit of an Argos system going on and there would be a library catalogue that people would access that was kept in the front of the building the public would look at the library catalogue see the number alongside the name of the book they wanted write that number down go to the library counter and have a look at the indicator here to see if the book was in or out i'm explaining this quite badly so no 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 so what you're not doing then in in a library at that time is walking along the shelf and running your finger along the spines and uh, pulling one out and having a look through a few pages this is a, a lot more uh, yes i'll take it based on the title it's it kind of is but the best catalogues were supposed to unpack the contents of a book and so the best catalogues were produced would kind of give a summary of what the book was about and so they provide some guidance as well and the library catalogue in tandem with an indicator was seen as the best and most efficient and streamlined system of running a local public library but there was a big dispute about this in the 1890s 
Uh, that's tantalising. <laughs> How big a dispute? A very big dispute. It was covered by the Sun newspaper, so it reached... Was, was ink spilt? Ink was spilt. Blood was almost spilt. A court case happened, uh, uh, accusations of slander, all kinds of things took place, uh, particularly on the pages of the library press. But as I say, it spilled over into the national press too. And also London Metropolitan Journal covered it regularly until they'd absolutely had enough of it and said, no more correspondence on this subject, please. But it was a huge dispute in the library world. And the Sun newspaper called it um, the battle of the books, the bitter war in the library world. World. And it was all about whether the public should or shouldn't have open access to the shelves. Um, well, I mean, it's, it seems obvious from uh, this point when, when I think about information, what are they called now? Idea stores. Uh, it seems w- w- that I can guess which way that went, but maybe it's not that obvious. No, I think it probably isn't that obvious because libraries often started out as open access because it was cheaper. So it's cheaper not to have an indicator, it's cheaper to have everything on the shelves. But what lots of librarians found was happening is that the books were getting in a complete state. And because people were thumbing them, pulling things off and on and off. And, and because everybody was new to libraries at the time, a lot of people weren't particularly well-educated. They didn't know. <laughs> Try, trying the books get. on as hats. And, yeah. <laughs> it was that kind of thing, yes, yes, trying to eat them, etc. Uh, and also there was a, I shouldn't say this because it's mocking it, but it's so funny, I can't help myself, is that there was an issue about ladies on ladders. <laughs> And I could just leave it to you to imagine what it is, but what it was is that there was a feeling that if the books were on a high shelf and a lady had to climb up a ladder to get the book on the high shelf, all of the men in the aisle where the lady was... So they become feel... terribly interested in the books below. No, no, this no. is this is Victorian times. <laughs> the men would all feel obliged to move to a different aisle so that they didn't embarrass the lady. Oh, how things have changed. Yes, exactly. So they would all have to... And then that would obviously inconvenience everybody. So the thinking was that it wasn't appropriate to have the books on open shelves. So lots of inventing went on behind the scenes and someone came up with the indicator device as a way of um, kind of acting as a conduit between the books and the borrowers. Nobody thought of shorter bookcases. No, no, that would be good, wouldn't it? But space was at a premium, particularly in the city, you know, in places like London. The libraries never had enough room for all the books, and so the shelves did need to go quite high. So, yeah, but also that's why an indicator library or a closed library was good, because it could have a small amount of space for the public, and the larger amount of space would be behind the scenes where the book stacks were, and they could be kept in a very shabby condition because the public didn't go there, only the librarians went there. So there were a lot of kind of practical reasons for having an indicator rather than an open access library. So is the fact that, and I'm, I'm asserting it's a fact based on very uh, slender library use, but it, all the public libraries I've been to have been open access, and it sounds as though that might simply be about the funding. Yeah, I think it's partly that, and it's also that people now are more familiar with and comfortable with library use, so it's seen as acceptable to have books on open shelves and that people can make their own choices directly with the books and they won't make a complete mess of them or they won't get the wrong item out. But I think the other thing that's worth mentioning is that books were so much more precious and valuable in the 1890s than they are today. Mm. So I think that was another issue, is that a lot of books did go missing, and at that time they couldn't be easily replaced. And the thinking by the public librarians, and this is a really interesting kind of flip on how you would expect people to think was that it was actually more socially minded to have closed access because if someone stole a book they weren't just stealing a book from the library they were stealing it from the wider community and so they were preventing other people from helping and improving their own lives so it was seen as a kind of negative thing in that way 
We often worry, uh, and in fact I've been in correspondence with somebody on Instagram about this in recent months about privacy, and they got the impression that I thought that the idea of privacy, which I have on previous podcasts defended, uh, that they thought I'd given up on that. I, I really haven't, and I do worry about what's being done with data certain social media applications seem to me like the easiest way in the world if you wanted to if you're a spying organization and you wanted to know everything about everybody then just uh, you, you no longer have to go and dig for it you just wait to see what people volunteer about themselves but it seems to me that there's the potential for that in the library system isn't there if you were to tie together uh, and digitize parish records and the library records that we're talking about and um, slather an algorithm all over it then you could probably find out an awful lot about people and their their lifestyles and their their choices and their views couldn't you Yes, you could. Yeah, that's a very good point. I think um, something that we at Bishopsgate Institute don't have to worry about too much because we're not a lending library and we don't have that kind of degree of information on people, level of information. But no, that is a good point. We have not enough time uh, really to do it justice, but what about the trajectory of London libraries to bring us up to approximately the present day? I think um, there was a period of initial explosion in the 1890s and the period up to the First World War. I think that is the real heyday of public libraries. They were packed to overcrowding um, people were desperate to get into access literature across the board so the books newspapers and so on and then I think it kind of settled down into the interwar period where people were still using the libraries in large numbers right through I think to the 1970s and early 1980s when there was still a sense that this was a family activity that you would go as a child to your local library you would get your borrower ticket or borrowed tickets at the time and start to use them and that I think anybody that you speak to that grew up in the 50s, 60s, 70s 1950s, 60s, 70s I'm talking about now would um, just because we have been getting quite Victorian I want to clarify anyone that you spoke to would have very happy memories of their local library i think the local libraries became in that period the real hub of the community i think it was like an introduction to literature for people and anyone that's of a kind of bookish sentimentality or a bookish leaning would have real fond memories of their local library from that period but i think then cuts did start to set in and i think also people were able to buy books more easily for themselves and have quite substantial collections of books at home because i think the other thing that we haven't really covered is that in the early part of the 20th century certainly people would have very very few books at home most books would possess only a bible maybe one or two other really you know books that they've been given at I don't know, Sunday school or something like that or a prize giving at school and that would be absolutely it. So the only way to access books was through the library. They were too expensive to buy and so I think the trajectory of public libraries in London in the 20th century probably does have a very close correlation with the trajectory of book selling as well. I wonder whether we're making assumptions about uh, that are wrong about the, the state of things now. I've certainly heard and I've, I've worked in uh, on both sides of the, the book trade as a bookseller and a book writer and I've noticed certainly that there are families and, and it was here in the East End that I sold books and I've noticed certainly that people w- were talking about families that didn't have any books in the house at all and there were schools initiatives to try and get a book into the home um so with the with the decline the sad decline of um of independent bookshops the decline of libraries i i wonder whether there isn't a decline of of book reading generally it does seem that that would have to be the case possibly we're regressing to a not dissimilar situation aren't we 
No, you're absolutely right because what's very interesting, I mean, we haven't spoken about the, we're, we're in my office at the moment, which is alongside the library, we haven't spoken about the library itself, but as you walk into the library, there are lots of old directories on the shelves there, very, very big old volumes from the 19th and 20th century. And um, when we do sessions with school groups here, and when we have done in the past, we've had young people coming in age 9, 10, 11, a completely overexcited to handle and touch and see these books on the shelf and so I think there's a sense that books are becoming more precious again for young people I think there really is because they're they're a rarity now to have a actual hard copy of a large book is really unusual so I think there will be a flip back again towards literature and towards owning and holding copies and I think that's quite exciting yeah it it certainly excites me and it worries me what you're saying and recognizing that that seems to be the case not for all families obviously it's certainly I've, for various reasons been knocking around lots of northwest and uh, southwest london families homes recently pretty well to do people and there are books stuffed in every corner as you can imagine and, and that's a very reassuring thing but of course that isn't the full picture by any means but is there any reason to be distressed about that mate not simply be the case that people are accessing that same information and getting the same stuff that they need in fact more easily on their you know, mobile phones laptops whatever it might be I think what's exciting thinking about that change in how people access information is that for young people in particular they can get a real range of information very very quickly now and I think it makes the world a bit more exciting to them than maybe it was certainly when I was young. I think that level of knowledge that young people have today is quite extraordinary the breadth the breadth of knowledge that they have from the internet so I think that that's a positive thing. One of the draws and and we'll come finally to the celebrations for the 120th anniversary of the institute here but one of the things i think places like the bishopsgate institute and the, the library in particular have too often now and i'm i think this is different than when the institute opened and the initial buzz around libraries is that we can access all this information and, and indeed a lot of the materials are online you know a lot of books that are out of copyright you can find them if you know where to look for them there's no shortage of text coming out of our smartphones but in the same way that you were yeah you can watch a movie on your smartphone but there is nothing that quite compares to going to the cinema and having that whole experience the smell of the popcorn and the sweaty seats and the enormous screen being surrounded by by the sound you can really indulge your love for uh, the film in that way there is something very special in it and it works on a practical as well as a, a, a sensory level of immersing yourself in a place that is dedicated to reading to studying to learning to to working with words um, there's something really very precious about that experience i think I completely agree with you and I think one of the most disturbing things that's happening in public libraries in London today, obviously not us here because we're in a different position because we're independently funded but I think for a lot of public libraries it's the closures that are really, really worrying because I think that a lot of people need the public library as a space to sit and read and reflect and not necessarily as a borrowing, book borrowing institution anymore. I don't think they're necessarily needed for that so much, but I think what they are needed as is a neutral, safe community space where people can go. And I think that's something that's worrying that that's changing. Is there, I'm, I'm worried that the answer is going to be no. Is there any glimmer of hope in that respect? Only in the sense of people realise that and people are aware of it. So maybe at a grassroots level there will be enough campaigns to keep things going, but I'm worried that there may not be. But I think certainly when you visit areas of London that are what we would think of as relatively impoverished, you will find that the public libraries are used in very, very large numbers because people's homes tend to be quite overcrowded. In, we're talking almost in the same way as in the Victorian period and same use of the library. So people come to the library as a space where they can have a relative amount of 
of, of freedom to think and peace and quiet. And I think that that's what the libraries are valuable for. And anyone that works in a local public library in a poorer part of London today will tell you that. I guess that ties in for an argument that we, we don't have time for around the privatisation of public areas, what used to be the town square or the, the library or things that we perhaps took for granted after the late Victorian period and imagine would, uh, would carry on forever. But maybe it takes uh, some sort of countercultural, sub- subversive, alternative way of thinking about things to rekindle that flame. I've got no doubt that the flame is alive here at the Institute and uh, perhaps we could finish off by saying how the Institute is celebrating. We have a ball. What else else is going on? Well, let's talk about the ball first. Let's let's not gloss over that. Well, the ball is taking place at at the end of November at the Institute, so have a look at our website to get details of that if that's something you'd be interested in attending. The 120 celebrations are taking place across several months because we not only had the, the kind of grand opening ceremony at the end of November in 1894, but we then had the library opening to the public at the beginning of 1895 so we're extending the birthday celebrations across that whole period you know into early 2015 as well um, and we have asked our first ever librarian to tweet for us and he's kindly agreed to do so so you can follow him at Ronald Heaton and he is tweeting his day-to-day experiences in the library and the different struggles he faces and challenges with getting the library ready and open for a a new public because I mean there's so many things that go wrong for him I think the catering around the opening ceremony is a complete disaster so that's something that's really concerning him he's having problems attracting the right type of assistant to help him out in the library so so he's going to be covering those kind of things on his Twitter feed so if that's the sort of thing that interests you then definitely follow him Uh, and just so we're clear um, Mr Heaton was born approximately when? 1863 I think it was so yeah 1860s so he's, he's pretty good he's a silver surfer <laughs> yes he is he's he's always been interested in new technology <laughs> and what are you going to be doing as far as the uh, the celebrations go well I'm teaching a course um, which is called back to the 1890s that starts in November and that uses items from our collections and relating to our early history to teach people or help people to learn using the collections about that period of time in London which is a really interesting period because it's certainly in technological terms there was a real speeding up of life I think that took place then and for the area of London that we're in on the borders of the city here it was a really fascinating period of of um, energy and excitement and busyness around the institute I think I love all those scenes that are described of of commuters pouring across London Bridge and into the city of London so you see in your mind's eye all those black coated workers on the bridge and omnibuses and lots and lots of traffic and I read a fantastic story the other day in one of the 1890s newspapers about a horse that bolted in all the crowds near to the monument and crashed into a plate glass window and shattered it and there was a real drama on the street so so we're going to take people right back to that moment in the 1890s in this course and use original archives sources and materials handling them looking at them and, and taking ourselves right back to that moment in time so i'm teaching that one in the um yeah in, in november and december and i'm presuming that's also on the institute website yeah so look out for back to the 1890s and then i'm also teaching a course about early library history in the spring term so that one is um going to be on the website as well i feel completely uh, overwhelmed sometimes it's quite obvious when you've come to the end of uh, of, a, of a conversation but there, it seems there's an awful lot of other uh, byways that could be taken from some of the ideas uh, around libraries in, and London and, and words and so forth. Literary London. There's a thing we could do, literary London at some point. Um, 
so perhaps we could, rather than calling this the end, perhaps we could call this a temporary pause before the next conversation. Thank you very much. It's been great speaking to you. My, my enthusiasms, and I hope most of it has managed to make sense. <laughs> we shall find out in the edit. Uh, Michelle Johansson, thanks very much. You're welcome. Thank you. My heart aches for some far off days, and that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Michelle Johansson. Thanks too to Anisha, Alex, Bernie Barkley and Mark Barr. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolfe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.